Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Father Saunders is with us this evening. Please stand. We'll begin in prayer. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, as we gather this evening, we ask you to pour forth your Holy Spirit first upon the Institute of Catholic Culture to guide all of them, especially our director, Deacon Sabatino, so that they may continue their great work of evangelization. We ask your Holy Spirit upon each of us so that we, as we listen tonight, our hearts may be opened, our minds may be opened, and the fire of your love may dwell within us so that after this evening we may draw closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In calling upon the prayers of our Blessed Mother, we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Alice von Hildebrand. Reverend Fathers, dear Dean Carazzo, dear friends, it's a privilege for me to talk to you because this is a topic that I have very much at heart and that I would like to share with you, namely the role of women in the church. Now, we should start at the beginning, and I'm going to make a detour before I get to my theme. Late in life, I developed a certain admiration for blind people. You see, it took my time. Why in the world should I admire blind people? And the solution, the answer is very simple. Because they know they are blind. They know they suffer from a deficiency. No blind man will accuse of someone looking at a sunset and say, you're hallucinating. They know their weakness. And this is something which is very striking in the gospel when there's a blind man in Jericho and he hears noise and he says to people, what's happening? He says, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he starts screaming, Lord, heal me. And the apostle says, keep quiet. And he screams all the louder. And Christ comes to him and he says, what do you want? Lord, that I may see. Now, in other words, he realizes he has this defect and he begs God to heal him. Now, my question is going to be a very interesting one. A blind man knows that he is blind. But the question that I'm going to raise is, don't we suffer from blindness? and don't even realize that we have this disease. I don't speak now of physical blindness. I speak of a type of blindness which is much more serious, which is intellectual or moral blindness. Now, I have taught for many, many years, and I have some experts because I have thousands of students. Take, for example, mathematics. There are students who are untalented for mathematics. And if you show them algebra or geometry, it is to them like old Chinese. They don't know what to make of it. And hopefully they realize that they have a defect, 
they have no talent for mathematics. But my crucial question is the following. What about questions of moral blindness? One of the great contributions that my husband has made at the very beginning of his career is to speak about moral blindness. And there is such a thing as moral blindness or also intellectual blindness, which is very different from lack of talent because it's referring to things that all of us can know, the moral law. Now, why is it that all of us, and when I say all of us, I make no exception, have such difficulty knowing themselves? Was there anybody in this room who has stand up and say, my knowledge of myself is perfect. I see exactly all my defects and all my faults and all my weaknesses. And I'm going to say, I'm afraid you live in great illusion. To know oneself is incredibly difficult. And at the end of my life, I came to the conclusion that saints alone know themselves. Why so? Because to know oneself presupposes humility. Instinctively, we're going to cut off our faults and our weaknesses. We don't want to look at them because it's very unpleasant. It is not difficult for most of us to detect the faults and mistakes and sins of other people. But our own are difficult because it is painful to acknowledge I am a sinner. We all love to say we are all sinners, aren't we? But to say that I have sinned in this particular case is something that many people find extremely difficult because it calls for humility. Now, we speak about moral blindness, and I'm going to speak about two dimensions. One of them is concerning a knowledge of myself, and I repeat, it is very difficult to know oneself, and most people live in the illusion they know themselves, they know something about themselves, but basically they don't know themselves. But I'm also speaking about a social or political or philosophical situation of the world in which we live in. It is my conviction that today we live in a world which is facing dreadful problems, extremely grave and serious problems. How many of us are willing to see? Number one, it's very unpleasant to say, well, this problem is going to be that difficult. We all earn for peaceful and quiet. Peace and quiet. And if someone disturbs you and say, no, no, there is danger, the first instinct is going to say, you exaggerate. You're a Cassandra. Don't keep depressing people. I say that today we are facing some very, very grave dangers. I cannot speak about all of them, but I'm going to speak about one of them, which is a very special concern of mine. The role of women in the world and the role of women in society and the role of women in religion. Why do I choose women? Because for years and years, a movement has developed that I call feminism. And I'm briefly going to analyze the philosophy of feminism and try to see that basically, if you study it well, you're going to see that it means looking down on maternity as being something which is detrimental, detrimental to women's growth. There's a war on maternity. At the very moment that we start attacking maternity, we attack the family, we attack marriage, and we all open the door all sorts of perversions. Let me repeat, you need courage to see, for the very plain reason that once you realize the danger, you must fight. And this is a moment when most of us become coward. A few months ago, 
my husband's memoirs called My Battle Against Hitler was published by Random House. And he wrote it at my request because he was one of the most, the greatest fighters against Nazism. And this is being recognized now. In 1921, when the Nazi movement started developing, and Hitler was plainly expounding his philosophy, he immediately saw this is evil. Not only the anti-Semitism, but the totalitarianism, the lack of respect for the human person, the statolatry, the fact the state is everything, and the individual is just a tool in the hands of the same. The very moment that he saw it, he knew that it was his mission to fight against it. Some people saw it, but the idea of fighting was something very, because once you fight, you make enemies. Once you fight, you expose yourself to dangers. And the thing that really moved me or impressed me so tremendously about Dietrich von Hildebrand is that he saw it and he said, nevertheless, I must fight. From 21 on, he wrote articles trying to invite or to see the German people wake up. There is danger. They did not respond. And I'm not only speaking about lay people, also speaking about the clergy. And many of them were simply saying, well, let's have peace, you know, we don't want more war, we don't want more discussion. And it was clear to my husband the moment evil of such dimension, you must stand up and fight. Now, Hitler came to power. And the very same day my husband declared to his wife, I'm leaving the country. I cannot possibly stay in a country which is ruled by a criminal. And he always referred to Hitler as a criminal. Now, obviously, when he left the country, he lost his job. He lost his house. He cut out from his relationship to his beloved family, St. Friends. He left everything. And overnight, he was a beggar. He had nothing. He went to Florence when his sister had inherited the beautiful house in which he was born and lived there for a while. And then at one very one point, he realized that there was one politician in Europe, the Chancellor of Austria, Dorfus, who was opposing Hitler because his philosophy was evil. So he went there, offered his service, and founded a magazine which today recognized to be the most anti Nazi magazine ever published. He fought there, he wrote innumerable articles. A few months later, the Nazis assassinated Dorfus. And he was replaced by someone who was a good man, but wanted peaceful coexistence with evil. That doesn't work, because the very moment that you have evil, you've got to fight against it. Well. Read the memoirs and you're going to see how dramatic the situation was. Hitler was defeated the very day that America joined the European force. And truly it is thanks to America that Hitler was defeated. Shortly before his death, my husband said something that shattered me. Out of a blue sky, he said to me, you know, in fact, Hitler won the war. And I was baffled and startled. I said, what do you mean? He said, he was defeated militarily, but his evil philosophy has penetrated into this society, our society, the great United States of America, because we've lost respect for life. It was sure after Roe and Wade, and my husband was so shattered by the fact that all of a sudden, the United States Supreme Court condones the death of the innocent. Now, this leads me to my topic. And my topic is the role 
of women in the world and the role of women in the church. Parallel to what I've just told you, there is a movement of feminism. Now, in order to understand feminism, we've got to realize that, in fact, there were innumerable cases in which women were abominably treated, treated as inferior, treated as objects of pleasures, and treated as plainly only worthy to be the slaves of men. This happened in innumerable society, and I'm sorry to say, it's not yet over. Now, every revolution has to begin with something which is valid. And I mean when I say that it is true that some women, or plenty of women in many societies, have been abominably abused, it is true. But now comes the philosophy of feminism. The devil never sleeps, but we do. The tragedy which happened in Gethsemane was that Judas was leading people to arrest Christ, and the apostles were sleeping. And this is a phenomenon that keeps repeating itself, that good people sleep, and they do not see the danger. Now, what is the danger of feminism? The devil, and this is the basic of my talk, the devil has one arch enemy, the woman. And this is something that goes back all the way to Genesis. Let us for one moment meditate on the incredible message given to us by Genesis. God creates the world, and at one point he decides to create a creature which is made to his image and likeness. Therefore, the abyss between a creature which is material, living, but is not made to God's image and likeness, and the one who is. And this man is called man. And immediately as male and female, he created them, indicating plainly that woman, man and woman are metaphysically equal. It doesn't make any sense to say which one is superior. They have equal dignity because they are persons made to God's image and likeness. Now, let me draw your attention to something. There's an amazing difference between Adam and between Eve. The body of Adam, that is in chapter 2, is taken from the slam of the earth. Bidunus, a very modest origin. And then God flows into his nostril and gives him a soul. And it is a soul that makes us to be human persons, likely God, like God in Umatzina. And then God declares, it is not good for man to be alone. These are precious and magnificent words, because to be a person means to be made for love and communion. And if you are all alone, and I mean, this is to my mind, the amazing mystery of the Holy Trinity. You know that it's one God, but a trinity of person and interpersonal love between them. Therefore, he decides to make a companion worthy of him, puts him in a deep sleep, and forms the body of Eve from the body of Adam. And then he wakes up from his sleep, and he sees Eve. Let me repeat, because it is absolutely crucial. Her body is not made from the slime of the earth. It is taken from the flesh of a human person, therefore given an incredible dignity. And Adam recognizes it because when he wakes up from his sleep and sees her, he says, blood of my blood and flesh of my flesh, he's enchanted. He knows 
this he deserves to be his companion. Not only that, but he says something of incredible depth and beauty. And he calls her the mother of the living. Let me repeat, the title of glory given to women is mother of the living. Now, life is something so overwhelming and so magnificent. God is life itself, and the woman is called the mother of the living. She gives birth to Cain, and after the birth of this first child, she exclaims something amazing that most people pay no attention to, which was to my mind extremely important. I brought a man into the world with God's help. What about Adam? <laughs> you can sort of imagine in the background saying, but uh, did have something to do with it too. Is not mentioned. Why is he not mentioned? There's a very profound reason. She said, I brought a man, namely a person, into the world. All of you who have elementary Catholic education know that the father and mother contribute something to the body of a child. But the body of a child is not yet a person. In order to be a person, you need a soul. Now, let me repeat, in case you've forgotten it. Neither father nor mother have anything to do with the creation of the soul. All they have contributed is semen and egg, that's all, which was pre-given in their body. And all of a sudden, this child is given a soul. God alone is creator. God alone can say, be, and something is. So you've got to realize that when a woman has conceived in this very moment, there is an unbelievable, overwhelming drama which is going to take place. And the drama is that God himself places a soul in the body of the woman. Let me repeat, God touches the female body to put the soul in the body of this fecundated egg. Now, whatever God touches you what? Sacred. Therefore, I claim that there is something sacred about the female body. And something sacred calls for trembling respect. Moreover, it calls for veiling. If you know anything about sacredness in any domain, it always means a secret. And a secret is veiled. Now, it means to say that the relationship of a man to his body differs in some way from the relationship of a woman to her body, because her body is touched by sacredness. And I mean, this is why for a woman to be mother implies a collaboration with God, which is something unbelievable, something overwhelming. And what is happening in the world today, I wish I could cry because it calls for tears, that for the first time in the history of the world, officially, a law is passed allowing women to kill their own children. Up to now, men have been the great killers in humanity. Most killings were done by men, and they have no reason to be particularly proud of it. But the very moment that women contribute to the killing, accept to have this newly conceived child, even after four or five months, to have it murdered, cold-bloodedly murdered, means we have taken a turn which, to my mind, is leading to the destruction of the world because the role of women is so crucial 
and so essential and so beautifully the moment she ruptures her, a link with life. We are heading for death. This is going to have dreadful consequences. Now, in the light of Catholicism, in the light of Christianity, let us look now at women with the eyes of faith. Satan, or the serpent, the most astute of all animals, addresses himself to Eve, not to Adam. I have the highest love and respect for St. Augustine. But to my sorrow and distress, he made a mistake. Because when you love someone, you would like everything to be perfect. And he made a mistake. And commenting upon the serpent addressing even not Adam, he said, obviously being very clever, he turned to her because she was a weaker. Number one, there's no mention, whatever, that she was a weaker one. Nothing is said about it. And then number two, I think, is enormously mistaken. Because in my long life, and I'm old, and I've made lots of experiences, it is quite true that in the history of the world, women have had less authority, but they have an enormous influence on the other sex. Now, what is the difference between the two? And I might surprise you by saying influence is more important than authority because authority is limited to, to commanding actions. You cannot command it and force it, and if you don't obey, you'll be punished. Influence can change a whole being. Suppose, for example, that you have the presence of the Holy Virgin among disciples. There were 12, then one left and was replaced. Can you imagine the influence that Mary had on them? Not by speaking, but by being as holy and perfect as she was. Now, I claim that if you study the history, for example, of great saints, you're going to see that innumerable of them are going to say, I owe my vocation, or I owe my faith to my mother. Now, therefore, just to show the enormous power which is given to mother. Now, Eve is defeated because of vanity, because she's told, in case, you know, first of all, the level raises question. It doesn't say, he says, why can't you eat of the fruit? Beware of questions. And I claim that the world in which we live today is in great danger because we raise questions that we should not raise. And by raising them, we open the door to evil. Why can't people of the same sex be married? By raising the question, you already deny the dignity of marriage between man and woman. This is what happens. The question should not be raised. And the innumerable such question today, why can't you? It's evil. And the very fact that even, why can't a merchant? I've conceived it and I didn't want it. Why can't I, for goodness sake? After all, I should be given some freedom. This question should not be raised. No. Satan raises an evil question, she falls in, she yields, and then gives the fruit to Adam. Does he say to her, my dear wife, you know, this has been severely prohibited. The first grape wimp, he says, <laughs> he says nothing and eats it. Well, don't you laugh? There's nothing to laugh about, because he was supposed to support her and to help her. He yields. They're terribly punished. And the punishment is first and foremost, the abyss created between themselves and God. They were made to God's image and likeness. They were children of God, 
and all of a sudden through their sin they create an abyss between the Creator and themselves that they cannot bridge. Only a Savior can save them. Number one. Number two, the punishment is death. Most of us don't like to think about death. Most of us, when we see someone dying or a casket, we run away because it is fearful. It is a divine punishment. God alone can invent such a terrible punishment that the union of body and bone is torn apart in a moment. And your body rots. Within days, nothing is going to be left but a handful of dust and stuff. That's all that's left. The body that you have loved, the body that you have admired, the body that some people pamper, working for hours every day to improve their appearance or what it might be. Gone. Dust and ashes. The most amazing miracle in the Catholic Church is promise the resurrection of the body. So a body and a soul that have been separated sometimes for thousands of years are going to be reunited. Now, Adam and Eve's body have been re separated for thousands of years. When they come together, they, I imagine there'd be some sort of readjustment. <laughs> Get used to your body, at any rate. Adam is punished, he's going to earn his bread with the sweat of his body which some people escape from as much as they can. But we all know that Eve partakes in it. You know, I recall that once I was in southern Italy, when there's an enormous heat, and the peasants start working very early in the morning. When it gets too hot, they go back home at their siesta. And I saw a peasant coming back having worked three or four hours in the field, sitting on a donkey, and the wife was following him on foot and carrying a bundle. That's what I call chivalry. And it's going to be one of my main points at the very moment that women betray their mission. They murder chivalry in men. And this is why today, it doesn't exist any longer. At any rate, Eve is punished in a very special way in the one domain that was her glory, give birth. And you all know that to give birth is a trial. Most people dread it because it is very difficult to, to imagine that a child that is eight or 10 pounds is going to come out of your body. And it is linked to excruciating pains so that it is said repeatedly in the, in the Bible, like a woman in labor. Now, many people are going to say it's a curse. And therefore, this is what is going to happen more and more. Maternity is a burden which is so heavy that it prevented women from competing with men. And therefore, what we have to do is to eliminate it one very fine day, and since I'm going to do, we can make baby in a laboratory. And then the problem is going to, they're looking for it, and they're working towards it. I hope they will never succeed. Thank God they cannot succeed. All right, this one word, we are told that the devil's head is going to be crushed. You know, the terrible things that happened to women, and because, let me repeat, they were used and abused and treated abominably in many societies. And then one very fine day, an angel of God appears to a young virgin and greets her full of grace, and she's surprised. And she's offered to become the mother of the And she says, chastely, how can it be? I know not man. 
And then she's promised that she's going to keep her virginity and conceive. And then she says the most beautiful words that a woman can say. And men, by the way, too. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done to me, according to their will. And she conceives the savior of the world. No. You will notice Satan knows something about this. And the first thing that is going to spread is, it's a illegitimate set. I still heard it in Hunter. You know, many of my students, you know, John was an illegitimate set, and then St. Joseph stepped in to cover the scandal. Nothing to do with a male. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit given to Mary. From this moment on, the moment Christianity was born, the role of women changed fundamentally because of Mary. Every single Christian and every single Catholic knows that she's the most perfect of all creatures and she is not a male, she's a female. And therefore, this is something as educators, as mothers, that you must make little Girls understand the incredible dignity and mystery of the female body, which I repeat, for this very reason, calls for veiling. Now comes to my mind the most glorious period in the history of the Church, the Middle Ages. You made the acquaintance of someone called St. Bernard who has written the most magnificent things about the Holy Virgin. If you don't know it, look it up, and you're going to find out it is magnificent, it is sublime, and women should read it on their knees because they too are women and are supposed to copy and imitate the Holy Virgin. But unfortunately, Satan never gives up. And even though there was a glorious period of the Middle Ages when Mary was honored all over, when Dante wrote the Divine Comedy, glorifying the role of Beatrice, you know, as a woman helping him to find his way to heaven. In other words, the more glorious beauty of femininity was fully acknowledged. But Saturn never sleeps, and he didn't like it. And so, once again, is going to work and try to infiltrate the poison of secularism. And then from the 14th century on, you see a decline. And then came the tragedy of the 16th century, the revolt of Luther and Protestantism, a protest against the Holy Catholic Church. In this very moment, this is accompanied and goes hand in hand with the loss of devotion to the Holy Virgin. For example, I still recall that uh, people are going to say, well, in the Middle Ages, it was about time we get rid of the Holy Virgin because she was considered to be the fourth person of the Holy Trinity. It's a lie. It never was said. Mary was always known and recognized to be nothing but a creature, but a blessed creature, because a creature who always said yes to God. You're going to see from this moment on Protestantism spread over a great part of Europe. And from this moment on, the devotion to the Holy Virgin was vanished and disappeared. And it's still the conception of many Protestants today, or Catholics are just adoring the Holy Virgin, which isn't true. We don't adore the Holy Virgin, we adore her son. But we venerate her and we love her because she gave birth to Savior. Once again, secularism was spreading. And the best way to spread wrong ideas is through books, theater plays, movies, and radio, television. And late in the 19th century, 
a very talented Norwegian writer called Ibsen wrote a book called The Doll's House, in which he shows the tragic situation of women treated by their husbands as stupid little children that is fun to play with from time to time. You know, a woman is for men of business and concerned about finances and politics, and then from time to time they little, need a bit of retraction, and then it's nice to play with your wife and do whatever you please and have fun. Now, that was a denigrating situation of women, and this book, I mean, this totally had an enormous effect. And it's not by accident that feminism started in Protestant countries, because there's no more devotion to the Holy Virgin. And it spread more and more and more, because keep in mind, health is not contagious, but most diseases are. I repeat, health is not contagious. You cannot catch it. But in the case of disease, many of them are caught by infection. So it spread more and more and more. And what happened about 60 years ago, that a very talented French woman, who had become famous previously because she was, quote, the friend of the most famous contemporary philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, went all over the world. And she wrote a book called The Second Sex, which I read and studied and know it well. It is a sheer abomination. And in some way you can call it the gospel of feminism, which is going to an enormously powerful movement, the feminists now fighting with equal equality with men, including, for example, the right to the priesthood. Let us go back to Mary for a moment. She declares herself to be the handmaid of the Lord and is rewarded by conceiving Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, the beautiful title given to women by Adam, Mother of the Living, Mother of the Living, no, Mary gives birth to someone who is going to say, I am the life. Not that I have life. I am life itself. No, this one person who says I'm light itself is God and man, and is also priest, because the priest has a relationship between man and God. He's a priest. And he is the only priest, because keep in mind, when a priest enters the sanctuary and is performing mass and saying, this is my body, this is my blood, it's not Mr. Father so-and-so and Father so-and-so. In this moment, he represents Christ, because there is only one priest, Christ. And there is a woman who is the mother of this one priest, Mary. And because she is the mother of a priest, it's impossible for her to be priest herself, because you cannot be mother and child simultaneously. Therefore, the nonsense of saying that women have a right of priesthood. The day that men can give birth, I'll be fighting for women becoming priests. But to know they haven't succeeded and their chances are very small. <laughs> Never will they be able to give birth. No, take Simone de Beauvoir. I mean, as I said, I studied her book. It is a series of cleverly presented lies. For example, who is man? Man is a person. A woman is only a becoming. Man is active. The woman is pure passivity. Now, sorry to say, this is 
an error that she inherited from Aristotle. I mentioned a moment ago that my great St. Augustine made a mistake in saying that the woman was approached because he was a weaker. Now, sorry to say that even though I have a high respect for the genius of Aristotle, he made a terrible mistake because in comparing man and woman, he declares officially the male is superior to the female because he's active and she's passive. And of course, activity is superior to passivity. Nonsense, Aristotle. He's making a dreadful and very grave confusion between passivity and receptivity. In the case of passivity, you are imposed upon and you suffer. In the case of receptivity, you collaborate with another person. And to accept to be fecundated by God, as the Holy Virgin did, and the handmaid of the Lord, is the glory of creatures. Because they creatures, whatever they have, they have received. Let me repeat, have no illusion. Men believe that they are creative and producing whatever you have, you have to. And suppose that you're a technical genius and you make an invention, and you say, it was my invention. Who has given you the talent? God. So in fact, whatever you have is a gift of God. And when you die, keep in mind that you take nothing with you except the burden of your sins. Receptivity is a most beautiful trait of creatures. Beautiful trait of creatures. When you steep, for example, the very moment that you receive the sacrament of the priesthood, it's a gift. You're receptive. And in this very moment, you're capable of representing Christ. Uh, at the burial of my revered spiritual director, Father Groschel, I met a young priest who said to me, I've been ordained a few weeks ago. And out of a busca, for some reason, I said to him, Father, when you consecrated the blood and the wine for the first time, were your hands trembling from emotion? And he looked at me in surprise and I said, no, it seems to me that when you represent Christ and by saying these words, you truly have the body and blood of Christ, you should be trembling. I wonder how many priests today they have celebrated Mass hundreds of times, do so as a sort of routine, instead of trembling from reverence, because what is happening is something divine that God alone can achieve. No, Simone de Beauvoir says, man is, man is active, he's a doer. Take, for example, architecture, painting, sculpture, literature. Who are the great artists, the great writers, the great painters? Men! What do women do, says Simone de Beauvoir? Nothing. They do nothing. And therefore, they are clearly inferior. Of course, they produce children, but this is something that rabbits do too. And they do it better. So there's nothing to brag about because, I mean, after all, it's nothing, something low and biological. But whereas, what do men do? They create, they invent, they work on the wheel of progress. Now, what is the tragedy of women? Maternity. Because the very woman that a woman is pregnant, you know full well that she's weak, she's helpless, she suffers. Sometimes pregnancy is very, very painful. You give birth in agonizing pain, it displaces you in a position of inferiority, and this must be fought against. The only solution is to liberate women from motherhood. And how do you do it? Thank God to male inventions. We have something called the pill. And by taking the pill, you prevent a possible conception. 
you prevent it. And therefore, you're liberated. The door is wide open to your developing your gifts and competing with men. But as long as you're pulled on by conception, by pregnancy, by pains, by you know, the whole burden of motherhood, feeding your child, you know, being linked to a house instead of going out in the world and doing great things. So therefore, according to Sambanda Beauvoir, not only should the pill be given to everybody, but on top of it, to prohibit abortion is a sin for someone who has abolished sins. Let us face the reality today. We are living in a world when the majority of people infected by a poison and philosophy no longer understand the greatness and the beauty of maternity, the incredible privilege given to women to give birth and to be linked to life. And it was is happening is that today this philosophy has gained to such an extent that the President of the United States would not hesitate for a moment to declare that he favors abortion. Now, the moment that you destroy the connection between man and woman because the complementariness is totally eliminated, you open the door to perversion. And I'm raising a question, which I'm not going to try to answer, whether the epidemic of perversion spreading in our societies is not a consequence of the fact that the sound relationship between man and woman has been ruined. You take the Middle Ages. There was something called chivalry. And chivalry is something very, very beautiful. The first great advocate of, of chivalry was Saint Joseph protecting the Holy Virgin. He takes, her to, he takes her to Bethlehem for the birth of the child. He takes her to Egypt because he is the one protecting them. He's one feeding the family. He is acting in a chivalrous way. Today, chivalry has disappeared. It's very rare that you meet a man who still feels, so to speak, that his mission is to help and to protect women. And of course, this whole perverse philosophy of fem feminism is responsible. So I'm going to end my talk with the sad words. Feminism has murdered chivalry. And I appeal to those of you who truly understand the beauty of the male vocation to help women who have the mission to give birth. If wake up to it, and maybe we can still save it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>